0: let's do some review here the last chapter chapter 5 we had the throne room of god who's sitting in the middle on the throne god the father what's on four sides of god the father the four creatures representing all of his creation the four beasts are the 24 elders who do they represent The old and new people of God, right? Very good. And the 24 elders, they have a crown on their head. They rule. They have harps. They praise. They have golden bowls full of incense. They pray, okay? Now, between the 24 elders and the four living creatures and the throne right there in the front, what did we see there? Standing as if he were slain. The Lamb of God. How many horns did he have? How many eyes did he have? Seven horns stand for the divine strength. Seven eyes stand for the Holy Spirit which sees everything and goes out to the world to bring people into the kingdom. Somebody pointed out to me or asked me last Sunday after the teaching, are these things real? All this stuff that, we, that we're we talking about, are they real? And I thought about it a minute. I said, well, they're really in John's head. But they're not really on earth. You ever seen a lamb with seven horns? Uh, is it true in heaven that God has a body sitting on a throne? No. This is a vision. It's what John was seeing. we got to remember that. Don't try to see this stuff and think, oh, this is actually in heaven. This is what we're going to see when we're in heaven. We're going to see something but not necessarily what John saw in his head. Alright, now the one who sits on the throne, in his right hand, what did he have? A scroll. How many seals were on the scroll? What did the scroll probably represent? A will. Not necessarily. It could be a D, but let's just say it's a will because you have to prove a will with seals. The witnesses... <laughs> Who witnesses, well, excuse me, whose will is it? Yeah. And Jesus in the will is going to bequeath a kingdom to somebody. Who's he bequeathing the kingdom to? Believers, Believers, right. Now, usually a dead person cannot witness his own will because he's dead, but Jesus witnessed his own will, right? How did he do that? Because he rose again. All right. So that's the background where we are. We're going to look now at the first six seals on that scroll. Chapter 6 is about the six seals that are on that scroll. Now, the first four seals are called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. What does the word apocalypse mean? Revelation. Right, it's a Greek word for revelation. It's a fancy word for revelation. Now, how many of you have heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse in a different context? In American culture, who are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? The average non-Christian will have heard of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse because of a sports writer in the 1920s named Grantland Rice, and he was referring to the backfield of the Notre Dame football team. And this is what he said. Outlined against a blue-gray October sky, the Four Horsemen rode again. In dramatic lore, their names are Death, Destruction, Pestilence, and Famine. But those are aliases. Their real names are Stoldreyer, Crowley, Miller, and Leyden. They formed the crest of the South Bend Cyclone before which another fighting army team was swept over the precipice at the polo grounds this afternoon as 55,000 spectators peered down upon the bewildering panorama spread out upon the green plain below. So you see, the sports writer used the four horsemen of the apocalypse as a symbol of death, famine, and destruction. Now, we went over this yesterday. Was Steve and I and Lee Sheen were going over it. And Steve pointed out, he says, man, there's a lot of depressing stuff in here. But remember, who is the wrath falling on? Is the wrath falling on Christians or on non-Christians? Right. So we don't have to read this and say, oh, God, it's going to be terrible. Okay? Just remember that. When the wrath of God fell on the world during Noah's flood, did the righteous people get destroyed? Who did? The unrighteous. How about... How about during the ten plagues of Egypt? Remember that? the Ten plagues fell on the unrighteous and idolatrous Egyptians. Did the Hebrews get hurt in any way? No. So we don't need to be afraid when we read all this stuff. Now let's look at the the scene a little bit here. Here's how it's going to work. we got these four creatures standing around the throne. Creature number one is going to say, Come. He's going to call a horse. The horse is going to have somebody riding on the horse. That's the horse mun. We say the rider, but this is the horse mun, all right? And then uh, creature number two is going to say, come on, horse number two, rider number two, and so forth with creature number three and creature number four, as we see here in verses three, five, and seven. Now, Revelation 6-2 says this, I looked, that's John, looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer Who rides on a white horse? I'll give you two options. Is it the Antichrist or is it the Christ? Alright, now the reason I ask that question is, is because in dispensationalist futurism, it is almost universally held that this horseman on the white horse, the first horseman of the apocalypse, is the Antichrist, the so-called Antichrist. And by the way, there is no the Antichrist in the Scriptures. There are Antichrist, and there's an Antichrist, little a Antichrist referred to back in the first century, but you cannot find this Antichrist. Now, there is a beast and so forth which Futurists try to put off in the future. We'll talk about that later. It's interesting that here we have Jesus riding on a white horse, and yet he's turned into the Antichrist by Futurists. Now, this is a problem And I'm going to go to a little bit of effort to show you that this rider on the white horse, just by looking at other verses in Revelation, refers to Jesus the Christ, not the Antichrist, all right? First of all, he's riding on a white horse. Look at Revelation 19.11 at the end of the book. Then I saw heaven open, that's John, saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Now who's riding on this white horse in Revelation 19.11? Its rider is called Faithful and True, with capital F, capital T. Who's that referring to? Jesus. Jesus. He judges and makes war, just like this horse, this this person, this rider is going to make war too because he had a bow, which is an instrument of warfare. So who is this referring to here? Revelation 19, there's no question, that's Jesus. Well, we've got another white horse, so that tends to make you think that this white horse is carrying Jesus, not the Antichrist. Let's look at Revelation, well, well let me... I tell you, before I go to crown, let's go to bow here. What is a bow used for? Yeah, hunt animals. How about hunting people and warfare? You know, know, the great step riders, Genghis Khan and all those people, they ended up wiping out the Roman Empire's armies because of the bow. And the English bowmen wiped out the French in the Hundred Years' War. The bow is a typical symbol of warfare. Now, this rider on the white horse... Is going to carry out war. He's going to carry out war with his enemies, on those who killed him and who were killing his prophets, the apostles and the evangelists. Okay? Now, also, this writer was wearing a crown. We go to Revelation 14:14 14, 14, and we read this. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like, sat like unto the Son of Man, Son of man, of course, is the Messianic name for Jesus. It comes from Daniel 7. <clears throat> Having on his head a golden crown. This guy, the first horseman, has a crown on his head. So who is the guy that has the crown on his head in Revelation fourteen fourteen? Son of man, right? That's Jesus, right? Well, he's got a crown here. Why would we not say he doesn't have a crown there? He has a crown. What does a crown stand for? Say it again. Leadership, Leadership, you say? Kingship, Kingship, yeah. The king, just like authority, like the 24 elders there wearing crowns. And then uh, Jesus is wearing a crown too. All right. So one more piece of evidence to show that the first horseman is Jesus. He went out conquering and to conquer. Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, and I was talking about to the Christian who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I, this is Jesus speaking, just as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. So that's a great verse here because it shows God the Father on the throne, God the Son on the throne, and you and me on the throne reigning and ruling which is exactly the opposite picture of hunkered down, waiting for the nuclear bombs to fall in the Antichrist to throw us in jail because we don't have the microchip under our skin. Okay, So Jesus conquers. The Greek word there is nikao, which we get, from which we get Nike, you know, Nike, victory. Revelation 5.5, 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, said to John. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus, the root of David, that's Jesus, has conquered so that he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So Jesus is a conqueror. So here we have him riding a white horse. Another, in Revelation, he rides a white horse in another place. He had a bow, which means he is uh, carrying out judgment on his enemies. He had a crown, which means he's a ruler, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So I think that's a pretty strong case to say that the rider on the first horse of the apocalypse is jesus now let's go to the second horseman of the apocalypse this is a symbol for war revelation 6 3 through 4 when he broke the second seal that's who's breaking the seals by the way you remember who's breaking the seals it wasn't john yeah the lamb of god and i always think of the lamb going up with his teeth Biting the seal. because I don't know if that's how John saw it. But anyway, it's the lamb that did it, Jesus. Because only Jesus has the authority. Who is worthy to break the seals? Jesus. He's the only one that's worthy to judge and establish the, the kingdom of the New Jerusalem. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the... And I'm going to use land here because this I take this to be judgment on the land of Israel... The Greek word there is gay. It can be translated earth or land, however which way the translator wants to use it. You can look this up in any lexicon and you you will convince yourself beyond a shadow of doubt that you can do this. I'm not just playing with the Greek here, okay? (laughs) So this red horse, uh, well, to the rider on the red horse, took peace from the land. So, And that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. So this is pretty obvious, right? Red horse stands for? War. And red, why is it red? Why do you think the horse is red? There you go. You have war, you kill people, and people have blood, and blood is red. I want to read you from Josephus, the historian, the Roman historian, who was in the city during the siege until he got out about halfway through. I'm going to read what he says about the red horse. Well, he didn't call it the red horse. He called it about the war. Let me find it here. Here's what Josephus says. Every city, that's every city in Israel, was divided into two armed camps, two armies encamped against one another. And the preservation of the one party was in the destruction of the other. So the daytime was spent in the shedding of blood and the night in fear. It was then common to see cities filled with dead bodies still lying unburied and those of old men mixed with infants all dead and scattered about together Women also lay amongst them without any covering for their nakedness. You might then see the whole province full of inexpressible calamities, while dread of still more barbarous practices which were threatened was everywhere greater than what had been already perpetrated. You have to read Josephus to get a feel for the Jewish war, how bad it was, and it was predicted in the book of Revelation, as well as in the Olivet Discourse, how bad those judgments were coming on Jerusalem. Yes, sir there so let's go to the third seal the third horseman of the apocalypse is famine revelation 6 5 and 6 when he broke the third seal i heard the third living creature saying come i looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand and i heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and wine Okay, black horse of famine. Why do you think that the Holy Spirit chose the color black to stand for famine? For whatever reason, black stands for famine. Now he had a pair of scales in his hand. So you see the rider, on the black horse, he's got a pair of scales, you've seen them. All right, let's look at Ezekiel 4.10. Ezekiel is prophesying about the first judgment on Jerusalem, which happened in 586 B.C. And he said, The food you eat each day will weigh eight ounces. You will eat it at set times. The King James has from time to time. Eight ounces. I'm assuming that's probably per family, maybe, even if it's per individual. Is that a lot of food? Could you live on eight ounces, say, of wheat a day? Eight ounces is about what... (laughs) There you go. Eight ounces of wheat every day. So what does that mean? You weigh out food. It means there's not enough of it. Okay? From time to time means when it becomes available. at set times, whenever the food's available. So the scales there represent the weighing of a scarcity of grain. There's not a lot of grain here. Famine. Now it says in verse 6, I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures. What do you think? Whose voice is that? Yeah, well, that's what I took it as God the Father. I happened to look at a commentary this afternoon, Mounts, and he says it's the Lamb because the Lamb's in the center of the four living creatures also, maybe, but he could be in front of the four living creatures. I pre- prefer to say it's God. It doesn't really matter. But let's say that this is God talking here, and he says, a quart of wheat for a denarius. Now, what's a denarius? A day's wages, a day's wages right. Probably for common laborers, is a day's wages. Um, and for one day's wages, you could buy a quarter wheat. Now imagine if you go to work today and you work all day long and you get a little little bit of wheat about the size of your Coke can plus a little bit more and you don't have any money left over for taking your girlfriend out, for paying your internet bill, for insurance, for housing, for nothing. You're just getting by. You're barely making it, okay? Now, why, does, why do you get three quarts of barley for a denarius and only one quart of wheat for a denarius? Why? Well, no, no, assuming the prices are the same, it's still going to be this way because wheat was the valuable grain. It came in in May or June or so. Excuse me, barley came in in May or June and wheat came in in June or July. It came in later. And barley was a cheap grain. And so you got three quarts of it, but still, that's not very much. And it's lousy grain. You feed horses with your barley, you know. So this is a picture of famine here. Now, the interesting part of of this passage here is verse six. God says, the voice says, "Do not damage the oil and wine." And nobody really knows what that means. But I'm going to give you three options as to what it means, all of which are very interesting. And I'm going to let you pick and choose what you want. I report, you decide. Here's option number one. The scales are a sign of Libra. In the horoscope, you know, you've seen the horoscope with the Libra. Libra. And in the horoscope, uh, Libra um, refers to September and October, okay? Okay. So the grain harvest would fail in April and May. That's the barley harvest. And then it would fail in June. That's the wheat harvest. And then the oil and the wine, they come in in September and October in the fall. So basically what's going to happen is is that people are going to be starving to death, and then all of a sudden they get the oil and wine in, but you can't live on oil and wine. Can you imagine living just on oil, like oil and vinegar oil, (laughs) olive oil and wine? You can't live on that. And the, and the wheat, and the barley's gone. And so this option says, and this is just an ironic way, p- way of pointing out what a terrible situation the people in Jerusalem are going to be in. That's option number one. Here's option number two. Scripture often speaks of God's blessings upon the righteous in terms of oil and wine. For example, in Psalm 104:15, we read, wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil, and bread that sustains human hearts. So you got your oil, you're happy, you're drinking wine, wee, happiness. And so the idea is do not damage the oil and the wine. That refers to the Christians who are not harmed. Well, how did that happen? Now I'm going to give you a story that is in Josephus. Josephus was the famous Roman historian who wrote the history of the Jewish War. The Jewish War was when the Romans wiped out Jerusalem in Israel between AD 66 and 70 in. Three and a half years. Interesting number. This is well recorded in Roman history, in secular history. There is an incident in there that fits perfectly with the Olivet Discourse. Now, I'm going to use this as an example of showing you how the Olivet Discourse fits perfectly with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Perfectly, all right? In, in the Luke version of the Olivet Discourse, it says that you, they will throw up an embankment around the city and it says, then when you see the abomination which causes desolation surround the city, flee. Okay? This is what happened. In eighty sixty six. there was a Roman general named Cestius Gallius. He throws up an embankment around Jerusalem just like Jesus predicted in the Luke version of Olivet, Olivet Discourse. He throws up that embankment. The Roman army caused desolation and the Roman army... Abomination is associated with idolatry in the Old Testament. It's, it, and it caused, it, the Roman army was causing desolation and it was causing abomination because the Roman army was represented pagan people. They had those pagan standards with the eagles that they worshipped. So this army that caused desolation all over Israel surrounded Jerusalem. The people, the Christians in Jerusalem were trapped there. They remember Jesus' words, and they say, well, how are we going to flee? Because the zealots, who were a band of Jews, who were very zealous for their faith, they were fanatics. And they said that the Messiah was going to come and beat the Romans and establish Jerusalem as a capital of the world, so we don't need to worry. More rational Jews would say, no, you're crazy. We're, we want to surrender to the Romans, because they're going to destroy us. Now, the Romans, the the Zealots, well, there were three factions in Jerusalem. The Jews in Jerusalem had plenty of food. They could have, and they had walls all around the city. They could have lasted for years. But the Zealots got control and they destroyed the food in the city. They destroyed the food because they said, we don't care because the Messiah is going to save us. Well, at that point, the Christians probably wanted to get out of Jerusalem because these people were crazy. But they couldn't because the zealots wouldn't let them. So they were trapped in the city. But all of a sudden, and historians to this day don't know why, Cestius Gallus, who had put his siege engines around the city, he withdrew and and started marching north with his troops. The zealots got all excited and they said, Aha, the Messiah has come to deliver us. This is a miracle. So they ran out of Jerusalem, went north, and they fought the Romans under Cestius Gallus at a place called Beth Horon in the north. And they actually beat Cestius Gallus. They won. And so the zealots were flushed with victory. Hey, the Messiah's going to deliver us. Well, while they were up there at Beth Horon, the Christians in Jerusalem said, we're out of here. And they all, <laughs> they all left Jerusalem, went about 40 miles or so north, northeast, crossed the Jordan River into a town called Pella. They rode out the end of the Jewish war and they were not one of them hurt harm not one hair of their head was hurt we all know this because of the fourth century historian church historian Eusebius of Caesarea who records all this all right now if that's the case do not damage the oil in the wine and the oil in wine refers to the church then that would be a pretty interesting reference to it now I don't know if that's true or not what I told you about Cestius Gallus and the Zealots and the Christians leaving and all of it discourse that's exactly true so that is one of the strongest arguments for orthodox Protestant view of eschatology what I just gave you alright so that's option number two about the oil and wine option number three this view says that the oil and wine refer to the artificial famine caused by the Zealots remember the Zealots destroyed all the food in the city And so they destroyed all the food in the city, but outside the Roman soldiers, they had plenty of oil and wine. I don't like that view so much, but I just give it to you. I like the second view myself. But at any rate, I don't know exactly what that means, but there's some good speculations right there. Here's famine described by Josephus. As the famine grew worse, the frenzy of the insurgents kept pace with it, and every day both these horrors burned more fiercely. For since nowhere was grain to be seen, men would break into houses, and if they found some, they mistreated the occupants for having denied the possession of it. If they found none, they tortured them as if they had concealed it more carefully. Proof, whether they had food or not, was provided by the physical appearance of the wretches, those still in good condition were deemed to be well provided with food, while those who were already wasting away were passed over, for it seemed pointless to kill persons who would soon die of starvation. Many secretly bartered their possessions for a single measure of wheat, if they happened to be rich, barley if they were poor. Then they shut themselves up in the darkest corners of their houses. In the extremity of their hunger, some even ate their ground grain underground, while others baked it, guided by necessity and fear." Nowhere was a table laid. The food was snatched, half-cooked from the fire, and torn into pieces. And there's another quote from Josephus, which I don't have with me, but it's a very famous one about the policemen, uh, the, the zealots, or whoever was in charge of Jerusalem at the time, or just maybe it was just people, going around looking for food. They came to this room, and there was a woman in there, and they smelled food. So they went in there, and the woman had cut her own child, her own baby, in half, and if I remember the story correctly, she gave the half the baby to the soldier that came in or to the person who came in as long as he would let her keep the other half. And, and the person just left in horror at the whole thing. It's horrible, horrible, horrible famine. All predicted by John in the book of Revelation. All right, let's look at the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. Death. Revelation 6, 7, and 8. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, You see... I haven't really showed you the uh, symmetry of this. you got the lamb breaks one seal. Then the first living creature says to the first horse. The lamb breaks the second seal. The second living creature says to the second horse. The lamb breaks the third seal. Third living creature, third horse. That's kind of the way it goes. It's like a play. So the fourth living creature says, come. I looked and behold an ashen horse. (laughs) Ashen is the translation of the New American Standard Bible. The translations are all over the place on the color of this fourth horse. Lots of different translations. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. So we see the horse, we see the rider on the horse, and then there's another figure behind the horse, following behind. So we got an extra character in the play here. Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the land to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the land okay now first let's talk about the color of this horse ashen that's pale well the greek word is chloros which is pale but it's a pale green now i don't know if you've ever seen have you ever seen a corpse i never have but if you see movies of dead people what what do they always do they get to be real pale and sort of green they have a green tint to them perfect pale green Pale, gray, green. That's the perfect picture of death, all right? So that's really the color of this ashen horse. The King James has the pale horse. You've heard the expression, the pale horse of death. It comes from the King James. Now, he who sat on this fourth horse had the name Death, and Hades was following. Well, Hades actually means death also in Greek. Uh, there's three possible definitions of Hades. One is the shadowy place of the dead where people go, as Sheol in the, in the Old Testament. And the ancient Greek pagans believed in that too. But Hades also means grave, and it also just means death. So we've got death followed by death. All right, so authority was given to them, that's to death and Hades, it's over a fourth of the land. Now, let's look at this fourth. Remember, we're in the seal judgments now. and we're going to go over six seals tonight. The seventh seal refers to what? Do you remember? Seven trumpets. So it goes like this. Seven seals, the seventh seal, the seven trumpets. Seven trumpets, the last, seven, the last of the trumpets, you break it, and it's seven bowls. So that's kind of the structure of it. Now, what we're going to see here, let me the seals destroy one fourth of the land. And this is the verse I just read. Authority was given to them, death and Hades over a fourth of the land to kill. All right. We get to the seventh seal and we open up the trumpets and we got trumpets come out. I just give you the first trumpet in Revelation 8:7. the first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood and they were cast upon the land and the third part of trees was burnt up and you'll see that all the way through the trumpets. It's a third of the land is burnt up. We go now to the bowls. We get to the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet blows and now we got seven bowls. It's 100% destruction. Revelation 16.3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Not one third, not one fourth, but all, 100%. Now what does this show about the judgments of God? This is a, a sort of a common theological truth. How does God do His judgments? They progressively get worse. They progressively get worse. And why does He do that? Because tries to warn you to repent. Tries to warn you to get you to repent. And if you don't repent, He said, okay. We're going to up it. And if you don't do that, we're going to wipe you out. Just what happened to the Israelites in 586 BC when the Babylonians got us? What happened to the Israelites in 8070? They didn't repent, and so they got wiped out. How can we apply that to today? Well, how about, well, you know, the 9 11 was bad, right? 2001? How about 2008? The financial crisis that scared everybody to death. And now 2020, we got COVID-19. Seems to me things are getting worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and the idea is America better repent or we're going to end up like this. 100% gone. I can't predict that. I'm not a prophet. I don't know, but that thought did cross my mind. Now, the disasters that fell on Jerusalem and Israel are summarized with these this formula, if I will. It comes from the Old Testament sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beast. Sword, famine, pestilence, and beast, wild beast. In Ezekiel 14.21, Ezekiel is a, an exilic prophet prophesying of the destruction of Jerusalem in, eight, in B.C. 586. He says, For this is what the Lord God says. How much worse will it be when I send my four devastating judgments against Jerusalem? Sword. See the sword? John says sword. Ezekiel says Sword. John says famine's coming. Ezekiel says famine's coming. Uh, John says wild beasts are coming. Ezekiel says dangerous animals, which is wild beasts. And John says pestilence coming. And Ezekiel says plague is coming. Pe- plague, just another the word for pestilence. So you see, John is using Old Testament language to describe New Testament realities. Now, John sees this stuff in a vision. He's got to go back and write it down somewhere, Right? How does he write it down? He, he refers to his knowledge of the Old Testament and writes down what he knows from the Old Testament to describe what he saw. There's a parallel. The same Holy Spirit wrote the Old Testament and wrote the New Testament. Ezekiel 5.17, again Ezekiel says, I will send famine, famine, and dangerous animals, wild beasts, They will against you. They will leave you childless, plague, John says pestilence, and bloodshed will sweep through you and I will bring a sword. Sword and bloodshed is sword right there. Parallels are obvious. Bad, bad business. Now, of course, if you're a futurist, all this refers to what we might have to... Well, actually, depends on what kind of futurist you are. If you're a pre-tribulation rapture futurist, we're going to get jerked up into heaven and we just get to watch all the disaster from heaven, assuming we can see from up there. But if you're a futurist that believes you're going to go through the tribulation, all this terrible stuff uh, refers to a possible future for you and me. Now, which view would you rather hold? Would you rather believe that all this stuff has already been poured out on God's enemies or would you rather believe that we're going to have to go through this in the future? This is why the book of Revelation has brought so much fear upon Christians. I could give you example after I just had two in the last couple of months. People called up or emailed, contacted me and said they were scared to death, would I please help? And I said, the Orthodox, Preterist, View of Revelation, I'll take care of that. And that's what I did. I told them to watch my YouTube channel. All right, let's go on to Revelation 6, 9, and 10. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, all right, we're finished with the four horsemen now. The Lamb breaks the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the land? All right. First of all, let's look at this pronoun underneath. Ever since I was a kid, I'd read that. I'd say, how can you have an altar and the souls be underneath the altar? That doesn't make any sense. Well, here's how it works. Aren't right, you got an altar. Well, you know the Old Testament tabernacle, you had... The Holy of Holies, then you had the Holy Place, and then you had the curtain. You go out the front door of the Holy Place, and what's that big bronze thing right there in the courtyard? Yeah, the bronze altar of sacrifice, right? It was a high. It was fairly high. They would sacrifice animals on that altar, and what would the blood do? Run down the sides of the altar, right? The blood is a symbol of what? Life life is in the blood Leviticus 19 I think it is life is in the blood and so if somebody dies they have to give their life that's why when Jesus' blood was on the cross he gave his life for our life because our blood ought to be shed instead of his so life is in the blood you don't have blood you die so blood stands for life alright so the sacrifice runs down the side of the altar and it pools at the base of the altar now what John is talking about here in his imagery is the Jews had put Christians on that altar Jewish Christians, on the altar and kill them. Their blood runs down. The blood stands for their life. So when it says the souls of those under the altar, it's talking about the life of those who are under the altar. And it means beneath the altar, not under it, but beneath. Maybe in the front of it, lower lower than at the top where the sacrifices took place. Now, think about this. When the airliners are in trouble and they and they talk to the tower and oh, you're out. Your engines burn up, and you've got a hole in the back, and you need emergency permission to land. And then they always say, "How much fuel do you have, and how many souls are on board?" I don't know why they do that, but they do. And what a souls on board mean? How many people are on board? Okay. So soul does not necessarily mean the non-material part of the body, which it can mean, but it can also mean like this soul right here. How many souls are in this room? It means how many bodies are in this room, actually. All right, so underneath the altar, John saw souls. I used to think, well, how can John see a soul? You can't see a soul. Souls are invisible. Well, that's how he saw a soul. He saw people. They been, had they've been slain because of the Word of God. Now, this Jerusalem, which is under judgment, is famous for killing prophets of God. I know you know this, but let's look here at Luke 13, 33 through 34. It is necessary, says Jesus, that I travel today, tomorrow, and the next day. And what he means is it's necessary. He was north of Jerusalem. He's traveling towards Jerusalem. He says, I need to get to Jerusalem because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent there. You look at the history of Israel. How many prophets got murdered? Tons of them. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under their wings, but you were not willing because they hated Jesus and they hated the prophets and Jesus was a prophet and he killed him too. Matthew 23, 35. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you. He's talking to the people of Jerusalem, the leaders of the old Jerusalem, Sadducees and the Pharisees and so forth. All the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you. You're going to be guilty of it. By the way, that could be so all the righteous blood shed on the land will be charged to you because that's where they kill people. They killed them in Israel, the land of Israel. From the blood of righteous Abel, you know Abel, to the blood of Zechariah. Scholars debate who this Zechariah was. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that they are constantly murdering prophets whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now if this blood that came down the side of the altar... I just said it went in the front. It could have gone down the backside, which is between the altar and the, sacri- and the uh, temple. So maybe there's an allusion to that. I don't know for sure. The Holy Spirit in the vision is telling John, this is what the Holy Spirit is talking about, the death of all those who proclaimed the Word of God. They were killed because of their testimony. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? How long? How long? Now anybody that's been unjustly killed, if they're, of course this is impossible, but if they're still alive, if if they're still conscious after they've been killed, they're going to say, God, there's got to be justice here. Somebody killed me and they're not getting punished. How many times... Well, I've said the same thing about America. You know, we've killed over 60 million human beings in this country since 1973. And I've said it often. God, how long are you going to wait? It, it, God's timing is not our timing. And so these martyrs were saying, Lord, come on, we need justice here. Where is it, Lord? Will you refrain from judging and avenging? Avenging is not revenging. It's avenging. Avenging means to punish righteously the unjust Revenge means to take personal revenge against somebody who's done you wrong in a spirit of anger and destruction and and nastiness. Big difference. Now, notice that this is perfectly okay for Christians who have suffered injustice to pray for justice. Now, in today's Christianity, you never hear, hardly at all, maybe you do here in this church, but at large, you hear very few sermons or exhortations about, god's justice how many often have you prayed for justice somebody got something terrible happened to them we should pray for justice for that person god is a god of justice we you cannot emphasize one characteristic of god over another and we emphasize today god's love and, and yes sir we should never de-emphasize god's love it was de-emphasized in the middle ages in the west but we don't live there And we don't live at that time. We live in a time where everybody talks about God's love. Well, God's love doesn't mean a thing without God's justice. Because these people were being judged so that the church could spread and God's love could spread all over the world. So it was very necessary to have both. The vengeance of God is a good thing. We're going to read about, maybe not in this lesson, but the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the lamb, little Jesus, meek and mild, you know, like a little lamb. But this lamb has got wrath. He's angry. Let's talk again about this idea of judgment by the lamb on God's enemies. This is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is Jesus talking to John. He says, I know your, and he's referring to the church in Smyrna. He's talking to Smyrna. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. So even in Smyrna, in present-day Turkey, a long way from Israel, in the synagogues, they had synagogues of Satan. I remember I was listening to Steve's video when he was teaching y'all. He said you can go down the street here in Atlanta and see these churches, these Christian churches. They're supposed to be Christians, but they're synagogues of Satan. I love that. Made my day when I heard that because it's true. (laughs) I just never thought of that, calling a church the synagogue of Satan. But that's what he's doing This is where Jews who hate Jesus—that's where they live. And by the way, you got to be very careful when you're talking about this that you don't veer over into anti-Semitism. You know, when the children of, uh, when the Jews in the crowd of Jerusalem said, "No, no, no, his blood be on our hand. Give us Barabbas. We don't. We want to kill Jesus. Let his blood be on us and our children." And people take that and say, "Ah, there's a curse on the Jews all the way now to the." To the present and the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages taught that constantly cursing the Jews you know the Greek word for children there his blood be on our head and on on our children that Greek word is not the word that means our descendants grandchildren great-grandchildren on down it means the first generation of descendants your immediate children that judgment was carried out in AD 70 when Jerusalem was wiped out and the Jews paid for murdering Jesus and that means that today you cannot blame a Jew for what happened in 87 any more than you can blame an Italian because the Romans put Jesus up on the cross. You can't do it and we got to be careful. So when I'm talking about judgment on the Jews, I'm talking about apostate Jews, synagogue of Satan Jews, evil Jews that killed Jesus. I'm not talking about all Jews. And continuing here in Revelation 2.10, Jesus says, don't be afraid. He's talking to the church in Smyrna. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. So, these persecuting Jews were killing Christians. And that's another thing. I was telling Steve this afternoon, I've always, in, in the Luke version of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, Don't worry, not a hair of your head going to be destroyed, right? And then he says, and some of you they will kill. (coughs) You ever thought about that? (laughs) Not a hair of your head is going to be destroyed, but some of you they're going to kill. Because Jesus took the long view. Somebody kills me, I'm going to be immediately resurrected and i get my hair back. (laughs) So, I'm not saying that this judgment on Jerusalem, that the persecuting Jews are not going to get away with killing some people. They are because their souls are under the altar. They've been slain. They've been killed. And it's the uh, evil Jews that are doing that, the persecuting Jews that are doing that. Matthew 10, 17. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, beware of them. He's talking about the Jews, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Jews at his time. They will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. Local courts, of course, they had local courts in each synagogue around the country. And the Jews there would just arrest the Christians, accuse them of blasphemy, throw them to the court. Jesus predicted that. This is all through the New Testament, what these Jews were going to be doing to the early church, the early disciples. And John is writing about that. Luke twenty-one twenty-two. this is Luke's version of all Olivet Discourse. These are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things are written. I'm going along with the idea here that God brings vengeance. He avenges. God avenges those who are slain for His Word. He brings justice to those who are slain. All those who were killed by ISIS in the Middle East, He's going to bring justice for them. God is a God of justice. All those Christians who were killed in the Cultural Revolution in China, there's going to be justice for them. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. Since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It is just. It is right. It is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. We do not need to be ashamed to ask God for justice. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. But again, now this is talking about judgment on the bad guys. What about the good guys? First Thessalonians 5, nine. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God will never put wrath on His church. Never. He might chastise His church. He might punish us a little bit to get us to fly right. But He's not going to destroy us. But He will destroy His enemies. We go now to Revelation 6.11 And that was given to each of them, as to each of the slain uh, martyrs under the altar, Beneath the altar, there was given to each of them a white robe. What does white stand for? Purity. And why were they pure? They had been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So they're saying, how long, O Lord, how long? And this is the answer they get. Well, you've got to wait a little bit more. Some of your buddies are going to get killed. And... (laughs) I read that, and I think, you know, Jesus is so blase about people getting killed. I remember I read C.S. Lewis one time when I was in college. He was in World War I, and he saw dead people, corpses. And he said, you know, we ought not to get so upset about death. And I'm thinking, my gosh, man, you're looking at dead soldiers, dead people, and you're saying that? I just couldn't believe that C.S. Lewis would say that. But his point was, you know, when God looks at death, it's like no big deal to him. It's like your soul goes from one place to another place and it's no big deal. We go to verses 12 through 14. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now, this is the sixth seal, the last seal in the scroll, except for number seven. And it's what I call decreation rhetoric. When God created the heavens and the earth, He created moons and stars and mountains, right? Now He's going to tear them apart, symbolically, all right? Now... If you are a literalist interpreting the book of Revelation literally, this is what you look for. You look for, oh, there's going to be an earthquake and the sun's going to get black and the moon's going to become like blood. The stars are going to fall to the earth. And you start thinking about physical disasters. Folks, that is not the way to interpret these. this type of rhetoric. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. If I, could, I don't have time, and I knew I wasn't going to have time, but I've got... Dozens and dozens of quotes in my notes of the Old Testament prophets talking just like this. And I'm going to give you some examples of where that rhetoric is used where it could not have been literal. Now sometimes it might possibly be literal, but I'm going to give you some examples where it could not be literal. Well, what does it signify? Whenever the Old Testament prophets prophesied like this, it was referring to regime change. The old kingdom's going down. And a new one's going to take its place. It could be Babylon. It could be Egypt. It could be Israel itself, actually. But it's not meant to be interpreted literally. And what I've done, I've color-coded these decreation incidents to uh, coordinate them with the Old Testament. All right, let's talk about earthquakes. Nahum 1.5, the mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence. That's Nahum prophesying against Nineveh. And, of course, Nineveh got destroyed by Babylon in 609, I think it is, B.C., around the early 7th century B.C. And and it's very famous in ancient history. You read, I've read the story many times, there's not one mention of earthquakes, not one mention of the hills melting, not one mention of the earth trembling. Does that mean Nahum was not a true prophet? No, that's just the language they used to describe the destruction of Assyria. That's all it meant. Let's look at Hebrews 12, 26-28. He is, that's God, His voice shook the earth at that time, but now He has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. What's the kingdom that's being shaken? That is, Shaking like an earthquake, that's referring to Old Testament. Apostate Israel, not Old Testament Israel, but apostate Israel. The author of Hebrews was trying to get Christians not to go back to that place. He said, why would you go back to a religion that's going to be shaken like the earth? You are receiving a kingdom, the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, that cannot be shaken. There's the theme again, old Jerusalem is shaken down, the new Jerusalem is established. All right, that's earthquakes about the sun becoming black. In our verse here in Revelation 6:12, the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. We read in Joel 2:31, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Now, in Joel they're not really sure what day of the Lord was be, was being referred to there. Day of the Lord just means the day of judgment. Not necessarily, by the way, the end of time when Jesus comes back on the world. It doesn't necessarily mean that, it just means the day of judgment. It's not sure there. But look look at here. In Acts two, Peter quotes Joel and he says that Peter says this I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be dark will be turned to darkness. Now Peter is talking about events at Pentecost. That's AD thirty or so. He's not talking about at the end of the world. He's not even talking about 8070. He's talking about Pentecost. Where at Pentecost was the sun turned to darkness? It was not. It's not recorded in the New Testament scriptures. You can look in secular history, astronomical history. They, they know where an eclipse has occurred back 2000 3000 BC, or 2000 BC. They know that. It, there was no eclipse there. The sun was not turned to darkness there because Joel and Peter did not mean to take that literally. Let's look at the moon becoming blood, becoming like blood. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. This is Joel again, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Peter once again quotes that. I just read this a minute ago, but let's focus on this part of it. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Now, if you are a literalist and want to be literal about all this, is the moon, did the moon turn to blood in 8030 at the time of Pentecost? I mean, was there hemoglobin up there in the sky? Did the moon literally turn to blood? No. Now, what futurists will do is they say, well, it just looks like blood because there's a nuclear explosion and the nuclear fallout goes in the air and it gets in front of the moon and you have a blood moon. You've seen the stuff on YouTube. I see it all the time. A blood moon, end of the world. But that's not literal, is it? That means the moon is like blood. Yes, sir. Literally or metaphorically? No, it literally. In your eyes, but but in the is the moon itself? Is it still the same white dust? Yeah, yeah, we just see it red right yeah. the, the shadows. Yeah. But does it turn to blood? Moon to no, blood? Not literally. not literally. That's my point. So if you want to be literal about it, you got to be consistent. In my opinion, you know, you need to be consistent. All right. And again, that's just talking about. Decreation. The moon is being destroyed because, because the old Jerusalem, the, that kingdom is going down. Regime change. Old Jerusalem to New Jerusalem. All right. Stars falling to the earth. In Revelation 6.13. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. This rhetoric that John uses comes straight from Isaiah 34.4. All the stars in the sky will dissolve. Now, there's a little bit of difference. John says the stars fall. Isaiah says the stars dissolve. Close enough. The sky will roll up like a scroll and its stars will all wither. Stars don't literally wither. Have you ever seen a star wither? No. As leaves wither on the vine, foliage on the fig tree. Notice the fig tree. Paul, John uses the term fig tree, cast its unripe figs. This is like foliage on the fig tree, not the figs themselves, but the leaves withering so it's a similar type rhetoric in Daniel eight ten. 10 it this is the little horn on one of the beasts there grew as high as the heavenly army that's the heavenly army of angels made some of the army of angels and some of the stars fall to the earth is that literal stars falling to the earth no. because what would happen if a star fell to the earth literally it, would the earth in it wouldn't even have to get here it would just get close poof and we'd be toast you can't take that stuff literally, folks. Revelation six fourteen a the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. Now, the Greek here is a little bit ambiguous, so you can picture it in various ways. You can picture it with a sky rolling up this way or rolling down this way. The way I looked at it was it split in the middle and one half went up and one half went down whatever John saw, I don't know, but the sky was upset. It was all rolled up there. there. Where did John get that rhetoric? Right out of Isaiah 34, 4, all the stars in the sky will dissolve. The sky will roll up like a scroll. So it's rolling here. It's split apart and rolling. Other versions don't have that split apart. The Greek is not clear. It just says it rolled up like a scroll. Um, And here in Isaiah, the sky will roll up like a scroll. And again, I don't know how literally, can the sky literally roll up like a scroll? I don't know how you would literally interpret that. Although certain futurists love to say we've got to interpret the book of Revelation literally. You can't interpret the symbols in the book of Revelation literally without ending up in la-la land. All right, how about the mountains being moved, Revelation 6:14, every mountain and island will be moved. This comes out of Ezekiel 38:20, or one example comes out of Ezekiel 38:20, the mountains will be demolished, the cliffs will collapse. I think I've given you the idea. And by the way, it's this is good to remember when you get to the Olivet Discourse, the same type of rhetoric, the blood will be the moon will be turned to blood, the sky will be turned dark, same rhetoric. Don't take that literally. All right, we'll finish up here. Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth, and I'm going to translate that as rulers of the land. Kings, the Greek word, I looked it up, and it's basileos. Uh, One of the alternate definitions was ruler. And the nation of Israel had rulers in the Sanhedrin, rulers. And of course, earth, gay can be translated as land. So we're going to say then the rulers of the land... And the great men and the commanders and rich and strong and every slave, that means the big shots and the small fry, all of them hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? All right. I mentioned earlier about the wrath of the Lamb. This is where I saw it right here. The wrath of the Lamb. Little Jesus, meek and mild, little Lamb, you know, with a little fluffy fur. This this Lamb is angry. He's got wrath. He's he's full of wrath upon those who killed him and who are killing his people. And who is who is he sharing his wrath with? us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne. Who is that? God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. God the Son. So God the Father and God the Son are both gods of wrath. They're gods of love too. I'm not trying to deny that, of course. But they're also a God of wrath. The great day of their wrath has come. The great day, I interpret that to be 8070 when the Romans completely fried Jerusalem and burned it to the ground. Now, where did this come from? Look at the, I'm going to look at two aspects of this, these two verses. First of all, we'll look at rocks. Caves and rocks, caves and rocks, all right? This comes straight out of Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10, 19, and 21. Go into the rocks and hide in the dust. Notice the hide, the hiding, the bad guys are hiding. Go into the rocks and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from His majestic splendor. People will go into caves and the rocks and holes in the ground away from the terror of the Lord and from His majestic splendor when He rises to terrify the earth. They will go into the caves of the rocks and the crevices in the cliffs Away from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor when he rises to terrify the earth. That could be land, too, by the way. Old Testament goes either way, too. So, you see, Isaiah is prophesying judgment on people who hide in the rocks. That's exactly what. And and of course, Isaiah is preaching against, prophesying against apostate Jews, just like John is. And now let's look at the mountains here in our last three verses here. Hide among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains of the rocks, Fall on us. Now this is interesting because it's a quote from Hosea 10, verse 8. The high places of Avon, that was a place name, the sin of Israel will be destroyed. The high places is where the Israelites were offering idols. It will be destroyed. Thorns and thistles will grow over their altars. They will say to the mountains, the idolatrous Jews will say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills, fall on us. Mountains of Exactly the same rhetoric. Exactly. And Hosea was preaching against idolatrous Jews and so was John here, or Jesus, and in, in the Holy Spirit in Revelation 6. It's the same idea. The parallels are... You have to be blind not to see the parallels. Now, what's even more interesting here is Jesus also quoted Hosea 10.8. And how did Jesus quote it? He says, "...disaster is coming upon your city." Just what he was prophesying in the Olivet Discourse. He says in Luke 23, verses 27 through 30, look, this is when he's carrying his cross on the Via Dolorosa. He's going to his crucifixion, carrying his cross, and the population of Jerusalem came out to him and were calling out to him on the way. And Jesus responds to him and he says, look, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the, when people will say, blessed are the women without children. The wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed, and what he's saying, you know, a, a Jewish woman, the worst catastrophe was not to have a kid. That that's all in their culture back then, especially, and that's bad, but it won't be as bad as what's going to happen to Jerusalem in eighty seventies. when he's going to get out, he says, because these childless women are still blessed compared to what's happening, because they will begin to say to the mountains, on us," and to the hills, "Cover us." He quotes the same. Hosea 10.8, the same one that John quotes. In fact, if you look at the parables of Jesus, I like the one especially. He is talking about the destruction of 80, Jerusalem in eighty seventy. Remember when he said the king's going to come back to these wicked servants who were managing the, the vineyard or whatever it was? And he says, and he will burn their city. You remember that parable? He will burn their city. He was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in eighty seventy. All right then, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you, Lord, for your gospel. We thank you for your kingdom. We thank you that you have seen fit because of your grace to seat us in the right, at the right hand of Jesus in heavenly places, as Paul said in Ephesians, and that we can rule and reign on this earth. We might not have political power. We might not have cultural power, but we have the power of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that we will be confident we will not be fearful of the future, that we will go out despite all the opposition against us, despite the demonization and marginalization of the church that we're experiencing today, that we will continue to preach the gospel and see the gospel flourish on this earth. Thank you for these believers that are here. Thank you that they care enough to know about what your word says. I pray that you would bless them, not only in their understanding, but in their lives. They're going out and they're coming in. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.